Pop Culture Affidavit, episode 140, My Batman Phase. Hello and welcome to episode 140 of Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. So after an episode recapping my recent uncollecting history, I thought I'd turn my attention to something that it was at the core of my comics collecting from the very beginning, and that's Batman. I recently was able to read all of the No Man's Land storyline for the 90s, which I finally finished acquiring in trade paperback. And after finishing it, I was reminded of why I loved reading the Dark Knight's adventures, especially back in the 90s, which, despite how much I make fun of it, was definitely my decade of comics collecting. I mean, I started buying comics in earnest in 1990, and that particular decade is where I was paying the most attention to what companies were doing and crossover events and continuity and all of those things as comic geeks, you know, end up picking up along the way. And yes, I still do that to a certain extent, but I was a teenager in the 90s. And that meant that I could devote more brain space to Batman, Robin, Nightwing, or the Titans than I do now. Anyway, as I was putting my No Man's Land trades back on the shelves downstairs, I looked at how many different collections, prestige format, one-shots, and graphic novels that I own that star Batman. And it made me think of something that Shag has said on more than a few occasions. Everyone has their Batman phase. Mine lasted the better part of a decade, and for a while, he was the most represented character in my entire collection. Plus, if it wasn't for my friends picking up some storylines and trades back in 1990, I wouldn't have collected comics in the first place. So this episode is going to be the tale of my Batman phase, and, well, one more chapter of my origin story. Why are you like this? Like what? Like how you are! I don't know who you are or where you came from. Now on, you do as I do. Okay? So picture it. Sable, New York, 1982. A young boy is watching cartoons after kindergarten. On WPIX Channel 11, Scooby-Doo comes on. It's one of the new Scooby-Doo movies. Usually the episode features someone like Don Adams or Abbott and Costello or the Harlem Globetrotters. And while they're good shows, there's one particular set of guest stars he wants to see. And good for him, the special guest that's announced that day is Batman and Robin. 
His day is made. I felt that it was more appropriate to start off this episode Sophia Petrillo style because when I think of my Batman origin, it involves after school and Saturday morning cartoons. As a member of the latter part of Generation X, I grew up with television as a constant presence in my house, and cartoons were appointment viewing. Kids these days do the same, but what's different about my childhood in the early 80s as opposed to the on-demand world of today is that, of course, I had to know the TV schedule and I had to wait to watch a particular favorite episode. The wait to see if the dynamic duo was going to show up on Scooby-Doo was anxiety-inducing to my five-year-old mind, at least in that moment. But the reward was even sweeter, especially on days when I missed the rerun of Super Friends. But I'm pretty sure that Super Friends came on in the morning, and I didn't always get to see it anyway. I'm not really sure why. My memories are fuzzy. That was 40 years ago. You have to excuse me. At any rate, it's not the point. The point is that with the exception of, say, maybe the live-action Incredible Hulk television show, which was in reruns in the evenings, and The Greatest American Hero, and Superman the Movie, my first exposure to superheroes of any kind was mostly through animated series. Super Friends, uh, Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends, and of course, Scooby-Doo. Batman and Robin on those shows, well, not Spider-Man, obviously, but Batman and Robin on Super Friends and Scooby-Doo had that chummy relationship. It's something that, you know, was complete with Robin making holy blank exclamations. And uh, I'd see those in the reruns of the 60s television show with Adam West and Burt Ward because WPIX would run them later in the decade. But with the exception of like one issue of Brave and the Bold, I don't recall owning a single Batman comic before I started collecting in the early 1990s. Of course, that's a cheat of a memory. I mean, I'm sure I owned a Batman comic or two at some point. I probably owned a coloring book at one point as well. But I only remember the fact that I owned a copy of The Brave and the Bold 182 because one day my friend and I were helping my parents clean up a bunch of old stuff from the attic that they were donating to our church. It was like mostly like Fisher Price Little People toy sets, which, um, in hindsight, they should have held on to because I would have been able to get a decent amount of money for them on eBay years later, but that's neither here nor there. Anyway, so we're cleaning out these toys. They all had this old luggage. It was like this old American tourist or luggage set that was like that old school 60s era, like hard shell luggage. And so one of the smaller suitcases I used to use all the time whenever I would stay with like my cousins and my grandmother. And I would, you know, it hold toys and my teddy bear and that sort of stuff. So I must have taken the comic book with me one time, but I forgot to take it out when I got home. Or I took the thing with me or staying at somebody's and somebody bought me the comic and I put it in there. Either way, I discovered that I owned this book. And, uh, you know, I had this habit of misplacing things here, you know, here and there over the course of my childhood. So it's very likely that I had had it, put it there, never took it out of river. Because, you know, there are like at least two or three Star Wars figures that dis disappeared from my house, like, and I never knew what happened to them. Like, one day I was playing with my TIE Fighter pilot, and the next day I didn't have my TIE Fighter pilot, and I have no idea where my TIE Fighter pilot went. Anyway, back to the Batman stuff. So I still own that issue of Brave and the Bold, although I own a better copy of it. Um, the copy that I had fished out of that suitcase already had a rolled spine and was kind of beat beat to shit. But, um, you know, I found a halfway decent, like very fine copy on eBay a number of years ago, so I replenished it. But it's still all one of my all-time favorite Batman stories. 
Now, part of it has to do with this nostalgic value. After all, it's technically my first Batman comic. The other part of it is definitely because the book is a team-up between Batman and the Robin of Earth 2, and it involves the revenge and ultimate demise of Earth 2's Hugo Strange. It also features an appearance by Kathy Kane, also known as Batwoman. We're talking about a kind of deep dive into Batman history and continuity courtesy of Alan Brenner and Jim Aparo. But unlike some continuity-heavy stories that are impenetrable, this was really easy to read. Okay, I was probably not reading it too closely when I got it at five years old, but it was still a very accessible issue. Jim Aparo, by the way, was one of the artists on Batman when I started buying comics in 1990. And that felt very comfortable to me back then because aside from the cartoons, my artistic reference point for Batman was Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, via all of the licensing art I saw throughout the 1980s. So while I now count Norm Brayfogle's Batman right near the top of my favorite Batman lists, even above Aparo's, in 1990, Aparo Batman looked like I felt Batman was supposed to look. But that just explains a little bit of how I came to know who the character was and whose art I gravitated toward when I started reading the books. It doesn't explain how I actually got into the collecting, especially as if you know, I stopped collecting comics altogether in the fall of 1987, and for the most part spent the last couple of years of elementary school obsessed with baseball, action movies, and Star Trek. So how the hell did I wind up wanting to buy Batman comics? Well, sort of. I've told this story before. Actually, I've told the story ad nauseum, but it's on topic, so I figure it's worth bringing up. I turned 12 years old on June 23, 1989. That's the day the biggest movie of the year and one of the biggest movies of the decade came out. And so I got a bunch of my friends together to go to the movies on my 12th birthday so that we could see Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. <laughs> So this is not a story of how the 1989 Batman movie got me into amazing comics where I picked up an issue of Batman and from that day on I was hooked. Although I did go into the comic store that month because I remember seeing that Bob had put out a ton of Batman related like marketing displays and things like that. And I even remember seeing issue number 436. That was the first chapter of Batman Year 3. Um, on the Picks of the Week shelf. I didn't buy it, though. In fact, I'm pretty sure that on that trip, I bought issue number five of Dark Horse's first Aliens series. I know that the Aliens book was actually on sale in March of 89, at least according to Mike's Amazing World, and the first issue of the second series was on sale in June, but I distinctly remember buying that book at the comic store and passing up something else for it. Or maybe I bought G.I. Joe Special Missions number 26 and What If number 4 because that was the one with the alien costume possessing Spider-Man. And I know I bought those off the rack, 
before 1990. Like, um, so anyway, the point really doesn't matter. The point is that I didn't buy the first part of year three. And when I went back the next week to get it, it had already sold out. So it was an early lesson of want, waiting on an issue. I probably, if I was, if I really knew that the, the way the comics worked in my area, I probably could have gone to the stationery store about maybe a, a month or so later or a few weeks later because the stationery store carried comics and they always kind of hung around for about, oh, a few weeks to a month longer than what was in the comic store because it was a newsstand thing. But I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't know that at all eh, back in 1989, 1990. Anyway, I did eventually see the Batman movie. I saw it in the theater. I got it on VHS. I watched it all the time. By the way, did anyone else's copy of Batman have the Joker's line, where does he get those wonderful toys weirdly cut? Like, the line in my original copy is, get those wonderful toys. I have the movie on DVD, but haven't watched it in a while. And the streaming version kind of does it too, so... I wonder if it's just mixed badly or what. I don't know. It's just something that's always bugged me about the movie because I remember the line being in the trailer being very clear. So anyway, back to the comics because even though Batmania didn't lead me to collecting the comics right away, I will say that it led to two other important pieces of reading material where it came to Batman. The first was a short story collection called The Further Adventures of the Batman. I got this, I think, in the summer of 1989, and I read it cover to cover. I'm not sure whatever happened to my copy, though. And most likely, my parents donated it. I think if I ever come across it in a used bookstore or Goodwill, I will grab it um, because I would love to go back and read it. I believe there was a Further Adventures of the Joker book that I never saw that. Anyway... Um, the other important gift, and I still have this, is that is the trade paperback edition of The Greatest Batman Stories Ever Told. Now, if you want to dip deep into the archives of Michael Bailey's Bailey's Batman podcast, check out episode 14. Mike and I uh, talk about The Greatest Batman Stories Ever Told on that episode. And you can also hear us talk about The Greatest Batman Stories Ever Told Volume 2 on episode 25 as well as The Greatest Joker Stories Ever Told on episode 29. I read The Greatest Batman Stories Ever Told cover to cover and over and over again, especially the last few stories, one of which was the Deadshot Ricochet, which is part of the Steve Englehart Marshall Rogers run. And it's one of my all-time favorite Batman runs ever. And also, if you want to go back to episode 98 of this podcast, check out my look at another book that I checked out of the library about a million times before I finally found my own copy, which was Tales of the Dark Knight, Batman's First 50 Years by Mark Cotta Vaz. But I am pretty sure that even with those copies of those books, and even though The Greatest Batman Stories Ever Told was a comic book in trade paperback form, and even though I could ride up to the comic store on my bike whenever I wanted to, I might not have gotten into reading Batman comics if it wasn't for a couple of friends of mine. 
It took a little while, actually, too. I remember my friend Tom sharing his copy of A Death in the Family with me in the small gym of our junior high school after we finished our English final exam in seventh grade. I think I just flipped through it and I read the scene where Jason's Todd's body is discovered. And I wouldn't read it for a number of years later when that trade was in its like seventh printing or something. And I bought it for, I think, like about $3.95 or $4.95 at the comic store. What I would read, though, are two books from late 1989 that I think really got the ball rolling. And the first of those is Detective Comics number 608. This is the first appearance of Anarchy. My friend John had this in a stack of comics that I read one time when I was hanging out at his house. I distinctly remember at least one or two issues of Superman and the Adventures of Superman that were published right before the Exile storyline in Captain America number 350. I think he gave me that copy of Detective 608 because he didn't want it anymore. At any rate, that was my first exposure to Norm Brayfogle's artwork. I was pretty blown away by both the story and the art in that issue. And one of my first priorities when I started collecting for real was tracking down a copy of issue 609 because it was a because the anarchist story was a two-parter. Because it's such a formative story for me, it remains one of my favorites. Now, John wouldn't be like my comic collecting buddy, though. He he uh, kind of phased out of comics pretty quickly. We would spend more time hanging around listening to music, playing hockey, and talking about girls than we would read comics. No, my geek BFF in school would be my friend Harris, whom if you listen to episode number 109 about the return of Donna Troy, that was my contribution to the JL May crossover a couple years ago, well, we co-wrote idiotic letters to the New Titans, some of which were actually published. Harris started buying comics in late 89, and since his mom was my piano teacher, we'd hang out together for a little bit each Wednesday afternoon, and we became friends as a result and would hang out at each other's houses all the time. Now, usually we play video games, we watch whatever after-school cartoon was on TV, Uh, sometimes we flip through his comics though, and he loaned me all five parts of A Lonely Place of Dying at one point. This probably would have been around the spring of 1990. Because it was soon after that when I ventured into Amazing Comics and picked up what were then the two most current Batman comics available, Batman number 450 and Detective Comics number 617. Longtime Batman readers will know that these two issues are the first two parts of a three-part return of the Joker, who, with the exception of a cameo, had not been seen for two years after the end of A Death in the Family. I wasn't keen enough to come back on a regular basis, so... I wound up missing issue number 451, and I wouldn't actually buy it for a few years. I think I might have borrowed Harris's copy to read it so I knew how the story ended. And believe it or not, the Batman title actually became my secondary Bat book because I was more interested in what was going on in Detective, especially since the next issue after that was 618, which is where Tim Drake's parents get kidnapped. So what you have is me finally getting in on fading Batmania at almost the perfect time. Tim Drake becoming the third Robin was huge, and it had been gradually playing out for the better part of a year in the comics. This storyline with his parents actually had me thinking he would be Robin at the end of this, but the editors continued into the Batman book, switching the creative teams, and this meant that Marv Wolfman and Jim Aparo went from... went to Detective from Batman, and Alan Grant and Norm Brayfogle went to Batman from Detective. Anyway, they had a three-part 
Scarecrow storyline that climaxed with Tim saving Batman and donning a brand new Robin costume. Now, first of all, that three-parter from Batman 455 to 457 is an all-time great storyline. It's got a really good villain. It's got a great villain plot. The art is freaking amazing. And I love how it mirrors a lonely place of dying with Tim riding in to save Batman, although this time he doesn't put on Jason's old Robin suit. Instead, he just simply wears a ski mask. Plus, Tim's Robin costume, oh my god, my favorite costume for Robin of all time. And I wasn't plugged into anything as far as comics news was concerned back in 1990. I mean, I might have picked up direct currents here and there at the comic store, but as far as what the costume looked like, I had to turn to the last page of Batman 457 to see it, and I was completely blown away by it. Mind you, it was Harris's copy of Batman 457. For whatever reason, I don't know. I didn't know about pull lists at the time, I can tell you that. So I didn't get the chance to go to the store the day it came out, so I missed the issue. And I would not get my own copy until a number of years later. I think I wound up paying something like five or six bucks for it, too. So yeah, I was all in on Batman. Well, not 100% all in. I actually didn't read Legends of the Dark Knight, mainly because between buying two Bat books, Titans, Dark Horses, Aliens, and Alien vs. Predator books, and those were like $2.50 a pop, by the way. That was a lot back then. Uh, As well as some of the Superman books at the time, I was tapped out. I didn't have the money for Legends of the Dark Knight. Plus, at the time, Legends of the Dark Knight was rarely, if ever, in continuity. If it crossed over to something, I'd pick it up. Anyway, I mean, the point is I was into Batman, and I made sure that I never missed an issue because I wound up getting a subscription to both Batman and Detective. Now, if you've read enough comics from back in the day, you know that there's usually at least one subscription ad in every single issue. Some of them used original art, some just slapped on licensing art, others took an image from a character's recent issues, to get, you know, for some appeal. The format was always the same. You could get a year's worth of any title you wanted for what usually amounted to a slight discount. Maybe it was like essentially like 11 issues for the uh, 12 issues for the price of 10 or 12 issues for the price of 11. You didn't get the annual though from what I remember. I think I remember having to buy those. Anyway, as I began reading Batman and Detective, I took one issue to my local library, put a dime in the Xerox machine, and printed out a copy of the ad. My parents agreed to get me the subscriptions and wrote a check for what was probably like 24 or 25 bucks. My first Batman issue was probably issue 458 or 459. My first issue of Tech was more than likely 625 or 626. I would still go to the store though. I would buy Titans, the various Robin miniseries, and eventually the X books. Which really, my X-Men face, that really should be its own episode. Over the course of a few years, I would subscribe to a total of three books, Batman Detective, and the third one was Deathstroke the Terminator. I ordered that before it came out because I saw a subscription ad. So what I got with the first issue was a signed copy of issue number one. It was signed by Marv Wolfman and Steve Irwin. And a promo poster for the series that hung over my closet door for years. Kind of bummed that I don't have the poster anymore. It would have been really cool to have Marv Wolfman sign it when I met him at the Baltimore Comic Con. But I did get Mike Zeck to sign my copy of issue number one. And even though it's not in the best condition, I find that pretty cool. Anyway, the advantage of the subscription was that I never missed an issue. But the disadvantage of the subscription is that the books tended to arrive according to their 
newsstand date and not the direct market sale date. So for a couple of years, I was actually an issue or two behind on Batman and Detective. The books were shipped similar to what we would get with a lot of magazines back in the day. They came in plastic bags with a flimsy version of a backing board that was made of the kind of cardstock that those windows replacement flyers I keep getting in the mail are printed on. Most of the time, the books were in decent condition when they arrived. Sometimes they were a bit beat up, but I do remember writing into DC and saying my book arrived damaged and I wanted to request a new one. I don't think my requests were ever turned down either. Being behind on my reading because of the subscription was never that big of a deal during the first few years of my collecting comics. But then something happened in 1992 and 1993 that led to me dropping the subscriptions and simply putting Batman and Detective on my pull list. And that would be Nightfall. Yeah, my first big multi-part Batman storyline. To this day, I'm pretty sure it's one of the most famous Batman stories ever written. It's certainly one of the most top-selling of all time. And it started what would become a tradition through the better part of the 90s. Huge events crossing over several books in the Batman universe. And that's where I'm headed after this break. Stick around. Hey, Sean, do you want to go over the checklist to make sure we are ready for the next phase of the Batman family reunion? Sure thing, Paul. Robin and Batgirl in team-up action? Check. Fried chicken? Check. Man-Bat fighting a were-jaguar? Check. Deviled eggs? Check. Potato salad? Check. Without the raisins? Of course. The Huntress fighting Catwoman and Poison Ivy? Check. Lemonade? Check. Alfred and Commissioner Gordon keeping a secret from Bruce Wayne? Check and check. Reprints or all new stories? New stories and reprints until issue 10, and then nothing but brand new stories from there on out. Giant size issues? A mere giant size until issue 16, and then dollar comics from issues 17 to 20 through the end of the run in Detective. Guest list? Absolutely. We are having a number of bat relatives visit the reunion, so listen in for your favorite bat cousin. All right, great. Then we're all ready for the Batman Family Reunion Podcast, where we talk about Batman Family, the great comic book from the 70s and 80s. We'll discuss not only the stories, but also the text pages and ads, and we'll also find out what the Batman Family was doing on the newsstands that month. And since this is a reunion, we're inviting all of you, the Bat Kinfolk, to listen in and to be part of the show. Look for the Batman Family Reunion Podcast on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I have to admit that I completely missed The Vengeance of Bane when it came out. I don't think that I knew the special was going to have any connection to the future events, so I looked at the solicit and I passed. Plus, this was in the middle of another event that was formative for me as a comic fan, which was the death of Superman. Vengeance of Bane came out during the Funeral for a Friend storyline, and that meant that for at least a few months, I was more focused on the Superman books than even Batman or the Titans. Also out was the third Robin miniseries, and Robin was a huge reason that I was reading Batman to begin with. So when you have all that and your Batman issues are coming later than what's on the comic store shelves, you wind up reading them when they come in or when you get around to them. I did buy the Sword of Azrael miniseries, though. I thought the concept and the art looked cool. I also bought Seduction of the Gun, that one shot, which... I remember having a serious impact on me when I was 15, but now I see its messaging is a little bit forced. Uh, That might be one to return to at some point if I can find it digitally or for free, because I sold my copy years ago. Nightfall was brewing at this point, though. Bane was showing up in the comics pretty much on the regular, but I can't say whether or not I was aware of it until I started seeing house ads. 
My subscription ended sometime during the first half of Nightfall, and I decided that since this was a huge event for Batman, I wanted to read it as it happened and not a couple of months later. So I didn't renew the subscription, and instead I put the comic book on my pull list, which I now had because Bob and Amazing Comics had told me what they were when I reserved all of the Death of Superman books and subsequently reserved Reign of the Superman. Batman number 497 came out at the end of May of 1993, which would have been toward the tail end of my sophomore year of high school. This was a huge issue, and I think that I read it more than a few times. In fact, I'm pretty sure that I went back and reread everything from the Nightfall storyline up to that point, especially since there was that two-part Two-Face story in Showcase 93, and it seemed that much like Superman, Batman was going to be on hold for a little while. Of course, he wasn't because we went into the Asbats era. Before I get into that, though, I need to mention what else I bought in May of 1993 because it was definitely at the height of my 90s-ness. Looking at Mike's Amazing World, there's all of the Superman books because Reign of the Superman was still going strong. There was a prestige format one-shot called Aliens Sacrifice from Dark Horse. Bloodstrike number one with the Feel the Blood cover. Oh, yes, I bought that off the rack. Brigade Volume 2, number one, which I think was the last of the Rob Liefeld-related image books that I ever bought. Deathstroke the Terminator, number 26, because I'd already let that subscription lapse. Excalibur 67, Lobo Annual 1, because that was part of Bloodlines, that crossover. Uh, New Titans, number 99. Shaman's Tears, number 1. Spawn, number 10, because that was the... Dave Sim, Todd McFarlane were great because we're not corporate whores issue. Team Titans, number 10. Uncanny X-Men, number 302. Wizard, number 22. Wolverine, number 71. X-Factor, 92. X-Force, 24. And X-Men, 22. So yeah, really 90s. Very much chasing particular trends. And I would actually bow out of the X-Books by the end of the year. And by the end of that summer, I think I have my only image book was probably Spawn. I might have picked up the occasional indie book, especially where Dark Horse's Star Wars stuff was concerned, but I would finish out 1993 with mostly a DC-based pull list. Wizard, by the way, does factor into this, because on the cover of issue 24, they featured the new Asbats costume, drawn by Joe Quesada, and for what I've heard over the years, Quesada and, or Wizard, maybe both, got into a little bit of trouble because DC hadn't revealed the new Batman look yet, and that was going to be reserved for the cover of Batman number 500. And that was still like a month or two away. So I have to be honest, I think that I thought the costume was cool when it came out, although I don't remember if I was truly following what was going on. I mean, yeah, I was following it. I was reading the issues, but at the same time, I don't think I understood the supposed subtext of this all being a critique of 90s superheroes. But what I will say is that a few years ago, I caught a copy of Wizard 24 in a cheap bin, and I grabbed it, bought it, and reread it. And I've since offloaded the magazine. But their coverage of the Nightfall and Asbats was interesting, to say the least. This might be my fuzzy memory, even though it's more recent than 30 years ago, but it seemed like Wizard really wanted to hype up the awesomeness of the new EXTREME Batman, and the Bat offices weren't, weren't exactly taking the bait. Or let's just say that they were being coy. They certainly were allowing the coverage because they wanted the book to sell, and 
holy crap, did that book sell? Really, if there's any single DC Comics issue that fully benefited from the speculator market while also being part of a well-crafted ongoing storyline that wasn't done just for speculator hype, it's like Batman 500 and like Superman 75. I mean, that's those are like the two biggest ones. Yeah, I'm sure there are others, and I'm sure that you can at me with all the warriors, this one, this one, this one. But those were like the two most prominent ones. And um, when I look at the rest of the Night Saga, it holds up pretty well. Although I'm still not the biggest fan of the way Night's End seem to rush everything. And while Prodigal starts off really strongly, it still seems a bit anticlimactic. I know that it was leading up to a Brutes coming back to be Batman, but after a really great first half with Two-Face, we got this meandering set of stories that end with Robin taking on Steeljacket, who looks like a wannabe extreme version of the Vulture from Spider-Man. And that's running concurrently with not-so-great art, while Dick and Bruce, in some really good art drawn by Phil Jimenez, um, they argue in the Batcave, and Bruce then puts the costume back on for real this time. So I guess you could see that Zero Hour kind of ruined their flow. And it's not like I didn't enjoy these stories or anything, but I remember feeling kind of meh about it. A year's worth of stories, most of which I enjoyed, were over, though. And while I was still reading Batman, I'd say that my favorite title of the Batman family would wind up being Robin, followed by Detective Comics. In fact, I was so turned off by Kelly Jones' art in Batman that I dropped the book, except for when I needed to buy it for crossovers. And by, by the way, in December of 1994, which is about, what, a year and a half after Batman 497, and this is when Prodigal ended, Troika started, this is what I bought. Aliens, Predator, Deadliest of the Species, which I remember being incoherent until the end and probably should revisit at some point. Uh, Damage, number nine, and that comic is going to get an episode one day. Dark Stars, number 27. Deathstroke, The Hunted, number 44. Flash, 98. Legion of Superheroes, number 55. Legionnaires, number 22. And I kept up with that Legion reboot for a little while. I think maybe until after Final Night was when I finally dropped it. New Titans, number 118. Spawn, number 26. Star Wars Dark Empire 2, number 1. And Superman, number 97. At this point, I'm about halfway through my senior year. And I think I'm spending as much money on music as I am on comics. Plus, I'm watching a ton of TV and movies. So there's, well, there's a lot. In fact, 94 and 95 is the beginning of a waning period of my comics collecting, mainly because it's my senior year, right? So I'm working like crazy. Plus, I started dating this girl. That was kind of all-consuming in my life. If I'm being honest, I didn't handle being a teenager very well. Yeah, I know not everyone handles a teenager being, being a teenager very well. But when I look at back on my years in high school, I was really immature. I mean, incredibly immature. More than the usual person. I don't know why. Maybe it was the undiagnosed anxiety and depression. Maybe it was because I really didn't have much of a life in high school, so I didn't get up to much. I didn't get much of an opportunity to really mess up, be independent. You know, all those things that you're still, all, all the mistakes you're supposed to make as a teenager, I never got the chance to make. So all I know is that my freshman year of college was half a shit show and half recovering from that shit show. And my sophomore year was how was at least the start of my sophomore year was me trying to make up for lost time. It was like, I, it it's it's very strange. It's all very strange. Anyway, 
I was still reading comics, but what I intended to do was just save them for like when I was on breaks and things like that. So I really didn't read them on the monthly basis that I had, or weekly basis that I had been doing. And I was kind of half paying attention to everything. Now, I did participate in the Bat crossovers of the mid to late 90s, because there were like, what, four, I guess you could say, at least the big ones. Contagion, which I think out of all of them was the one I found most engaging, because that came out a year or two after the movie Outbreak, and I remember thinking that was a really good movie at the time. I'd also read parts of the book The Hot Zone, and that's an overall, that's a great book, scary as hell, too. So the idea of the clench, which is this fast-acting plague, and that's something Batman has to figure out instead of simply fight, I thought it was a really good conceit for a story. I was on Batgirl to Oracle talking about uh, Contagion with Stella years ago. I think it might have been like, oh, I don't even know what episode it was. But anyway, it's, it's a really, really good story. If you get the chance to check it out, I would. But following that up was Legacy, that started off with Detective Number 700, which that was a pretty big deal for me because it was a multiple of 100. And I've been reading the book for most of the 600s. And at that point, I'd collected most of the back issues. So I almost had like a full 100 consecutive issues of tech. Legacy was a Rachel Ghoul story. It marked the return of Bane. And I found it underwhelming at the time. In fact, I haven't read it since then. And I sold my copy of the stories years ago. I, I probably could just get it off of DC Infinite right now if I wanted to read it. But uh, I just remember it being kind of underwhelming. Cataclysm came a little while after that. That's the story where Gotham has a major earthquake. And that would wind up having serious repercussion for the better part of a couple of years. And again, I have to hand it to Denny O'Neill and his team because Cataclysm could have been one of those stories that changes everything, but really just slaps a slightly different colored coat of paint on the books or just fades away once the next story arc gets underway. But no, Cataclysm led into No Man's Land and No Man's Land was the epic year-long crossover between all of the Bat Family titles. And I was kind of there. For context and or placement, the core of No Man's Land is published throughout 1999, beginning in January and ending in December. Where was I? Senior year of college, graduating, and then moving out on my own from Long Island to Arlington, Virginia. It was as rough and confusing a time in my life as my senior year of high school and that year's immediate aftermath. Again, looking back, I had no idea what the hell I was doing, and I was woefully immature. But this isn't beat yourself up for mistakes that you made more than 20 years ago. This is talk about reading Batman comics, okay? Besides, I beat myself up for things I did 20 years ago on a day ending and why. So anyway, this is all to say that the only chapters of No Man's Land that I bought were the ones in Detective Comics. I was still reading that on a regular basis. And if there was an issue of Robin or Nightwing that were part of the storyline, I picked that up as well. I might have bought one or two of the final chapters. Um, I do distinctly remember owning the issue where Sarah Gordon is killed, which I think is the very, very last issue of the whole series. Um, but for the most part, I missed the storyline. I had other priorities. I had a job. I had a girlfriend. Not, not the one from high school, a different girl. I had to be miserable at 22. You know, that stuff. So comics really were a backseat 
at this time. And by the time the Bat books lurched toward war games, I'd let so many issues of Detective Comics pile up on my nightstand that I decided to take it off my pull list. I would read Nightwing for a couple more years, dropping it around sometime after Infinite Crisis, I think. I'm not sure when I dropped Robin. It might have been around issue number 100, or it might have been a couple of years after that. I know that by War Games, I wasn't buying it as well. In fact, whereas I saw Batman, Batman Returns, Batman Forever, and Batman and Robin in the theater, I didn't see any of the Nolan Batman films until they were available on DVD. And I watched the first couple of seasons of Batman the Animated Series pretty regularly when I was in high school, but as high school bled into college and college bled into my 20s, animated DC stuff faded as well. You know, I, I went back a number of years ago and watched all of Justice League and Justice League Unlimited, and I've seen some of the Teen Titans and some of the other animated things here and there, but really, um, it just everything just kind of slowly fell off my radar as the years went on. So unlike my X-Men phase, which had a hard stop in 1993, the end of my Batman phase was more like a fade-out. And while I've been reading the most recent run of Nightwing, which is freaking excellent, some of the best comics I've read in years, I haven't read that many Batman comics in 20 years. Yeah, there's exceptions to this. I, I did buy the trade paperback of uh, Under the Red Hood. I think that's the name of it, or The Red Hood. The one where Jason Todd comes back. I checked out Hush and a couple of other trades of recent vintage from my local library. I bought Detective Comics number 1000. But really, when I read Batman, I'm content to go back into the 80s and 90s. And some stuff before that, in fact. In fact, if I could make a list of Batman stories that I read during my Batman phase that I considered to be the most important or favorites of mine, well... I'll tell you what they are after this break. Grab your bat microphone. It's time to start the show. Check out the bat pod with your host, Bill Beer. This was, cucumber this sandwiches. was an issue. <laughs> yes. Have you ever had a cucumber sandwich? And his co-host, Joey Galvez. I mean, I like it. You know, cucumber water. Have you ever had that? It's so refreshing. It's Topic of the week. I really love the Michael Keaton Batman, the Tim Burton Batman. Thought you were gonna mention Batman and Robin for a minute. <laughs> you know, George Clooney had you hello or character spotlights. The condiment king was a guy named Buddy Stanley, uh, okay. a former stand-up comedian. But you know, stump your co-host segments. Okay, where's your Batman card? Just go ahead and send that to me. Sorry, sorry. And we'll, and we'll rip bit. that up. <laughs> Okay. You can find the Bat Pod on the nerdylegion.com. We're on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, Google Play, and we are now on Stitcher. The Bat Pod is a proud member of the Nerdy Legion Network. Your crime fighting collective. It's the Bat Pod. What the blue bacon? So, like I said, when I put this episode together, I started thinking of like what were the stories that were really, really important to me. So I just jotted a bunch down on some notes, almost as if I was writing an old blog post or something. So I'm just gonna walk through them. They're arranged in chronological order as for when they were published. So I don't have like a, a single favorite and it's not a countdown. But we'll start with one that is like a really formative piece for me. And I think for a lot of Batman fans, and especially for Batman, the character themselves, because they are 
two origin tales of the Dark Knight. The first one is the origin of Batman from number, Batman number 47, and the second one is the first Batman from Detective Comics number 235. While I would eventually buy the black and white paperback edition of The Untold Legend of the Batman from the Scholastic Book Club, and you know the type of reprint book I'm talking about. It's, it's the size of a regular paperback book, and like all of the, uh, all of the panels are printed um, on, in black and white on those pages, and sometimes they're a little hard to read. Anyway, so while I bought that, I, I got that from the Scholastic Book Club, and I actually eventually found um, the, the uh, Untold Legend of the Batman in, in individual issues in uh, back issue bins, and I have all three of them now. While I got all those, I actually read these first, these original versions first, because they're in the greatest Batman stories ever told. They're from the 1940s and the 1950s, and they're very much of that era but I think what I did was I read those two stories as much as I read Snake Eyes, The Origin from G.I. Joe number 26 and 27. They just hooked me, probably because they were the origin of Batman. But really, just to see that play out in its original form was really cool to me at the time. Jumping forward to the 70s would be the trade paperback Strange Apparitions. Now, this is the trade paperback that came out, I think, in the 2000s that collected the Steve Englehart Marshall Rogers run on Detective Comics. And I think it's safe to say that it's a set of stories that have been, that has had more influence on me as far as Batman is concerned than any other story. Back when all I had were the trades of the greatest Batman stories, the greatest Joker stories, and the greatest Batman stories, Volume 2, I would take all three of those books off the shelf and read through what was there from that run just because I loved all of it. The Penguin... Deadshot, The Joker, Silver St. Cloud, Boss Thorn. And man, I didn't even have the Hugo Strange stuff at the time. And those chapters would be some of the best stuff in there. I don't know how in print this is as a collection. Um, I don't know how available it is. I know the issues are available online. And I would uh, recommend that you read it if you've never read it. It's just some gorgeous artwork on the part of Marshall Rogers and Terry Austin. And Engelhart's story with the subplots and everything. There's some soap opera things going on in there. It's a great, great run. Next up is To Kill a Legend from Detective Comics number 500. Now, this is a story where Batman and Robin are sent to another Earth with the task of preventing the murder of Thomas and Martha Wayne. It's a great story by Alan Brennert and Dick Giordano. And it, and it contemplates whether or not Batman is inevitable and what he would do or could what he could do if he had the chance to save the two people that he never could. I've always loved this story and I always loved the concept of exploring like whether or not there is a need for a hero or this particular hero if there's necessary sacrifices that need to be made in life. If you had the chance to fix this thing, would you do it? And it's done in a really tight little story that's a good superhero story as well. The Brave and the Bold, number 182, I mentioned this earlier. It's essentially my, ostensibly my first Batman comic. It's that great Earth 2 Robin team-up where they fight Hugo Strange. Then jumping further into the 80s, into the post-crisis era, Batman Year 2. I know, it's sacrilege to say this, but when I was 13, I loved this story more than Year 1. Or Dark Knight. I think it was because the Reaper was a cool-looking villain and because I dug Todd McFarlane's artwork. 
and Alan Davis's. But I read this trade paperback so much that the cover is practically falling off. In fact, I think the spine is taped. <laughs> no, it has not. The, the story of year two has not stood the test of time like the story of year one. But it holds a special place for me. And I actually think it's a little underrated, especially when you pair it with Full Circle, which was the sequel to year two in uh, that Alan Davis and Mike W. Barr did in the 90s, which I have too. That's also really good. Next is Batman issue number 416. I think this is one of my all-time favorite single-issue stories when it comes to Batman. If you're unfamiliar with this one, it takes place after the post-crisis Jason Todd has been introduced, and he's much different than the pre-crisis version. Again, we don't have time to get into that, but what it does for the post-crisis DCU is give us the first meeting between Dick Grayson and Jason Todd, and that's much different than what we saw back in 1983 and 1984. We also get a confrontation about Batman and Nightwing over Bruce's firing Dick, which was another post-crisis change. It's some great character stuff from Jim Starlin, uh, great artwork by Jim Aparo and Mike DiCarlo, and it's one of the last good Jason Todd moments before a death in the family, because the death in the family starts about 10 issues later. Skipping over a death in the family, which is a formative piece for me because I was, I, it was an early story that I read. I've never been the biggest fan of the story, though. Uh, I enjoy it, and I've read it time and time again, but the, I don't think it's, it's, it's a little clunky. <laughs> as far as some of the elements are concerned. But what's not to me is what came after that. And the big thing for me that, as far as storylines are concerned, are these two. Batman Year 3 and A Lonely Place of Dying. I talked about the significance of these stories earlier in the episode, but I like to include them as one big piece, along with a few issues of the new Titans that were coming out at that time, and uh, the secret origins annual that was a secret origins annual of the titans because that came out as well you don't need those they're like dressing for it they're 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 a good side but uh with if you just stick to year three in a lonely place to die and get some great great stuff and i came to those by via back issues and trades and even 33 years or so later they still hold up really really well because especially like the post-crisis jason todd was kind of a mess and it's like they learned their lesson on how to introduce Robin and what to do with Robin for the late 80s and early 90s and the changing tastes of comics because they introduced Tim Drake in a way that was kind of a slow burn. They ingratiated him to the fans and had him become like learn to become Robin, earn the mantle, like whatever you want to call it. And it was outstanding, even if Dick refers to him as Jeff at one point. But what are you going to do? Next up, Detective Comics number 608 and 609. That's the two-part anarchy story I mentioned earlier. My tease of sorts for the Alan Grant and Norman Brayfogle run. And today they remain two of my favorite issues of that era. Great, great stories. Speaking of where I started, Detective Comics number 617 and Batman number 450 and 451. This is literally where I started, with the return of the Joker. Detective 617 is an odd story. It serves more like a prologue 
to the Batman issues. And honestly, you could just read the two Batman issues without six, seven, tech 617, but that's the first issue of that comic that I bought on my own. And the Batman story in 450 and 451, it's a great two-parter. It features someone impersonating the Joker and then the Joker having to come out of hiding to take back his rightful place. It's a Marv Wolfman, Jim Aparo, Mike DiCarlo joint, and that in my mind, it helps kind of, it's one of the stories that helps Batman close out the 80s for real and and kind of start bringing us into the 90s Batman um, that's another discussion we could have. Like, when does the 90s really start for Batman? Is it nightfall? Is it a little earlier? But I'd like to think that this Marv Wolfman run is kind of the end of that particular era, and it overlaps with the Alan Grant run, which is kind of the start of a more sophisticated 90s Batman. Uh, again, your mileage may vary on that, but yeah, it's just something to, to think about. Anyway... Next up is Detective Comics 618 to 621 and Batman 455 to 457. These are the two Tim Drake becoming Robin stories that I mentioned earlier. And along with the Return of the Joker storyline I mentioned were my ground floor for collecting Batman. They would later be collected along with the first two Robin miniseries in the A Hero Reborn and Triumph and Tragedy trades, both of which I own. I had the issues at one point as well. I think I sold them on eBay 20 years ago. Batman 465 is my next pick. Uh, this is another story featuring Robin. In fact, it barely has Batman in it because Bruce Wayne winds up stopping a criminal instead of Batman. But this is a landmark issue of sorts for Tim Drake because after having the Robin miniseries where he was on his own, it's his return to Gotham and him taking his rightful place as part of the dynamic duo. In fact, his logo was on the cover and said cover is Norm freaking Brayfogle doing his version of Jack Burnley's iconic cover to Batman number 9. Next is Detective Comics number 647 to 649. This is the three-part storyline with the Clue Master that introduces Stephanie Brown and her alter ego, the Spoiler. It's actually a, more of a Robin than a Batman story, and it was published between Robin 3, Cry of the Huntress, and the first issue of Robin's ongoing series. Plus, it's by the same team that did the Robin miniseries, you know, Chuck Dixon and Tom Lyle. So, and I think Bob Smith did the inking. So it has this feel of keeping things warm for us Tim Drake fans. I loved this when it came out because Tim was a character close to my age, and I liked Steph as well. In fact, I knew more than a few girls in my high school that were very much like her, and that made her seem very real and not so much wish fulfillment as Batman and Robin were. But I digress because that's a whole other show in itself. <laughs> Next up is the Night Saga. By this, I mean Nightfall, Night Quest, and Night's End, as well as some of the lead-ins like Vengeance of Bane, and I probably throw in Prodigal and Troika if you just want to go from beginning to end there. Talked about them on other shows, which I referenced earlier, so I won't get too much into it, except to say this was a pretty immersive experience as a Batman fan, so I have to put this on the list. And there's No Man's Land. I'm actually going to include Cataclysm and the Aftershock issues here as well, because I recently finished collecting the six trade paperbacks that comprise the Road to No Man's Land and all of No Man's Land. Like I said, I wasn't collecting everything at the time these came out, so doing this quasi-reread was more of me picking up what I had missed at the time instead of revisiting an old favorite. Still, I loved this. I loved the entire saga. 
I couldn't put it down. I read the entire thing pretty much between Christmas and New Year's. And, um, you know, I've been used to long-form storytelling for most of my comics collecting career. I mean, I've read The Titans, and I've also read all of Claremont's X-Men. So digging into this was easy. Having it arranged in trade in the most complete format that was done at the time was much nicer than dealing, like, trying to get all the individual issues, which is a lot of comics. I can't imagine what I would have spent on them back in 1999 if I had been buying them off the rack, by the way. Probably money I didn't have. Plus, I'm glad I had the patience to wait to find that last No Man's Trade um, because I, for years, like for a year or two, I was looking for that trade. I had the first three, and I was like, no, I'm going to wait to read it until I have the whole all four trades. And that No Man's Land Volume 4, the, the amount of money it goes from eBay is like crazy. I've seen it upwards of like $100. And I'm like, I'm not paying $100 for this trade and I was about to really just kind of go on DC, you know, digitally and just read it digitally or buy it digitally off of Amazon or something. And then I found it for about 30 bucks with shipping on eBay. And that's higher than I normally pay for an old trade paperback, but I think right around or below cover price and way below what other people were asking for it. I call it a deal. So that's my Batman phase. Now, before I go, I have one piece of listener feedback. This is an email from Professor Allen, and he writes in about the last episode, my uncollecting update. He says, Tom, I have been fascinated by your uncollecting process since it began. I have followed your blog posts and was glad to listen to a podcast update on the project. Like you, I've realized that there is nothing wrong with disposing of something in your 40s or my 50s that used to be really important to you in your 20s. The act of growing up, changing, maturing is not a betrayal of the person you used to be. For one, more, for one thing, that guy was a self-important, immature boob. That's me, Tom, not you. Good point about reading copies, and yes, I smiled when you talked about them. Fact is, cheap things are much easier to get rid of than potentially collectible or valuable items. My father passed away last summer, and though he was not a hoarder, after 87 years of life, more than 30 in the same house, you just accumulate a lot of stuff. Don't I know it? I'm sitting here in my the office in my house, and I'm looking at a closed closet, but I know behind that closet are like board games and comic books and all sorts of ephemera. (sighs) Anyway, back to Alan's email. He said the kids and grandkids got first crack at the physical possessions and we all took some stuff, some practical and some sentimental. I grabbed a lot of his books, but not to keep. As I read them, some go to half price books to trade on for comics and some go to the library book sale. My sister actually sold some of the furniture through Facebook Marketplace, but a lot went to charity. Of course, a lot went into the trash, too. We were fortunate in that my sister had a neighbor whose church is involved in resettling Burmese immigrants in eastern North Carolina, so we had ready homes for all of the unsold, unclaimed furniture and stuff. Beds, chairs, tables, lamps, kitchen supplies. Without that outlet, the whole emptying the house process would have been that much tougher. Again, love the process. Thanks for sharing about both the practical and emotional aspects of the process. Don't beat yourself up. Take care and keep up the good work. Professor Allen, the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, and Dorkness to Light. 
Thank you very much for the email, Professor. And by the way, thanks for the Christmas CDs. Uh, he was, they were actually he he was off, he was putting some things up on on Twitter or, or Facebook or something, saying we have these. Does anybody want them? And there were like four or five. Uh, I think it was like four Christmas CDs. And um, I was like, yeah, send them my way. And thankfully, you know, when you're like supposed to be uncollecting and you're getting stuff from other people, storing CDs, which I didn't mention on the episode, is like one of the things I don't have to worry about. We years ago transferred our entire collection of about 800 or so CDs into two giant CD books instead of like keeping all the jewel boxes on shelves. So we didn't have to, you know, Alan didn't contribute to any clutter and I, uh, I ripped them and I put them on my iPod and, uh, you contributed positively to my Christmas music rotation in December. So that was awesome. I do appreciate the email and the reassurance though. It's an ongoing process. The blogging ebbs and flows sometimes with my enthusiasm for it, but most of the time because life just gets really busy and me not having the time to sit down and write blog posts just, is just a thing. In fact, this very episode took two weeks to write. Anyway, I was thinking of making that uncollecting episode a regular January thing or maybe a periodic thing. At one point, I did think of creating a separate podcast or maybe a podcast miniseries out of it, but I didn't have enough material for more than just an episode or two. So that's why you got what you heard. And speaking of what you heard, if you're interested in what Alan's doing, check out the Relatively Geeky shows as well as Darkness to Light. If you're interested in what I'm doing, just come back for the next episode. I'm going to be dipping back into music and culture and politics and world events from 20 years ago. We're talking about 2003. We're talking about the beginning of the Iraq War. Chicks. Freedom fries. Yellow ribbon magnets. All that sort of stuff. Until then, check out the blog for show notes. Email me or leave some sort of comment or review somewhere. And as always, thanks for listening. And take care. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit, which is produced by me, Tom Panneries. All clips are copyright their respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. This podcast is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you can find at twotruefreaks.com. If you like the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps the show get noticed by other people. Feedback via email can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. For show notes and essays and other things random in the world of popular culture, visit popcultureaffidavit.com. You can also follow this show on Facebook at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. And on Twitter at PopAff, that's P-O-P-A-F-F. Thanks for listening, and come back next time for more pop culture randomness. Mm-hmm.